0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. A blessed Christmas to all of you. You know, sometimes one of the joys of Christmas is sometimes we have people who come to church who don't come that often during the year, and they'll come to church. and It's great to, we love having people come to the Lord's house. And you might ask, why do people come to church who otherwise don't do so on Christmas? I think one of the reasons is this is sort of the magic of the Christmas story. I mean, it's got everything. The Christmas story is a magical story. We have Mary and we have Joseph. We have baby Jesus in the manger. We have angels, we have shepherds. We've got it all. It's a beautiful story. People love it. Children love it. Everyone loves that story. So people who come to church on Christmas and they hear the gospel we just read and they say, whoa, where's Mary? Where's Joseph? Where's, where's baby Jesus in manger and... Where are donkeys and sheep and shepherds and angels? Where did everybody go? Well, so we might ask ourselves, why does the church always read this gospel as the main service, the main Christmas service? There are three Christmas services in tradition, and the main one is this one on Christmas Day. Why, of all things, would we read one of those stories? Why would we read John's gospel? Well, I want you to imagine here, let's take an example. Let's imagine you're a newspaper editor and you have these young cub reporters out there trying to really make their name. They're trying to break in to get the story that's gonna make their career. So let's take some, let's suppose you're back in Washington, our capital, back in April of 1865. And a young reporter rushes into your office and says, this is it, this is the story that's gonna do it. I'm gonna hit the front page. You say, well, let's see, let's see the story. And you look and the headline says, Medical emergency halts popular theater production. And you say, well, give the kid a chance. Maybe this will be page 10 human interest or something. You read for a few minutes and then you say, look up and say, President Lincoln's been shot? You say, we sort of, that headline sort of missed the story. You know, and say, this is not about a medical emergency or a play getting interrupted. Well, let's suppose you're at Lakehurst, New Jersey in 1937 and again the cub reporter comes into your office and says this is amazing look and he has a story called failed landing forces changes in travel plans and you start reading and saying well gee this is this is not a story and then you realize the hindenburg blew up i mean hundreds of people saw the zeppelin the world's largest zeppelin just come across the atlantic ocean blow up okay Finally, let's suppose you're in Berlin, Germany. And it's May of uh, of 1989. And again, your cub reporter comes in and says, this is the one. Exuberant crowds damage local landmark. (laughs) (laughs) And again, you look at me, the Berlin Wall is down? So what's the problem here? In each of these cases, the headlines are certainly true. They're certainly true. But the point is, we say, what's really important about this story? And we'd say, well, gee, when it comes to Lincoln, here we have at the end of the Civil War, we need leadership more than ever. The president dies at the worst possible time, and his vice president is enormously unpopular. He'll be the first president to be impeached. So this is, that's the story. It's not a medical emergency stops the play. OK. And what about we talk about the Hindenburg disaster? This isn't about changes in travel plans. This is talking about, this was looked upon as the newest in technology. It was actually a transatlantic commercial flight, regular people buying tickets and going across the Atlantic by air. This ends Zeppelin traveling as, as, as commercial transit. It ends a whole industry. And what do we have with the Berlin Wall? It's the end of communism. It's the reunification of Germany. It's not about defacing a local landmark. So why do I use these examples? Well, sometimes our version of the Christmas story is sort of like our own version of the Cub Reporter. Unexpected birth disrupts couples' travel plans, mother and child resting comfortably. (laughs) That is not the reason why we date the calendar from the birth of Jesus. So the Gospel of John, we call John in the church the theologian. He's the one who tells us what it's all about. So John, we read John's Gospel to say why is this so important? The beautiful story of the baby in the manger, why? What's the real story? Not just what somebody would have seen walk by. What's the real story? So let's look. The first thing, let's, for the first verses we had today is it's gonna tell us something. Normally we think of a birth as a beginning, right? It's a great start, something starting out, something brand new. The first thing we're told, that's not true at all. Nothing could be farther from the truth. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So, wow, so the first thing we find out is God is not alone. We believe there's one God, but we think God is not alone. With Him is the Word. Let me explain something. We don't get the idea of what the Word has a different meaning a feel if you're a Greek speaker, logos. You know, that's where we get our word logos means word, but I bet you might not know this. It's also where we get our word logical from. When Greek philosophers then talks about logos, what they meant is, you know when we think? We think in a language. That's why you can't remember early things in your life until language you can't remember. And one of the ways to test with bilinguals what your stronger language is, is you ask somebody, I want you to do this math problem out loud. You know, tell me right now as you're thinking, it's very hard to do in your second language. It's even if you're otherwise fluent, think, whoa, because you automatically go, well, how do I really think? It'll come out, you know, how do I think? So this is now, we tend to think of word as simply, well, here I am, and how do I get it across to people? This is part of who I am, the very part at the heart of my being. So it's saying, the word was with God, the word was God. So what do we mean the word God is one, but he's not alone? The story of the Trinity is from before all time, God is beyond time. The essence of God, John tells us, in one of his epistles, God is love, which means giving, complete giving. Love is all about giving. God gives his very self and the recipient, that's his son. And the son returns that love in an endless circle, that's the Holy Spirit. It becomes a circle of power that's endless. It's not like this happened long ago. It continues forever. The Father gives himself, the Son returns that love in the Holy Spirit. God is one, but he's not alone. Three persons, one God, but three persons. So God is not alone. Then we're told that about this word, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We might think, well, gee, this marks the start of Jesus's career. You know, maybe he's with God or something, but this is where his career gets started. No. It says from the very beginning, the very first action, you know, when we have the creation of the world, Christ is that, is in the, everything is created through him. He's active from that. There's nothing ever that's happened that he's not been involved in. So Jesus' birth is not the start of something. It's the continuation. Matter of fact, the Scriptures teach us he was active throughout the story of Israel. For example, he's the fourth man in the fire. He's the cloud that leads them. Paul says that rock that followed him, that was Christ that the water came from. Okay, so God is one, but he's not alone. And his son, his word, his only begotten son, has been at work from the very beginning. So what happens now that we celebrate, he said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. Now, there are two different works in Greek. I want to tell you that we have a word, soma means body, okay? Sarx is a very special word. Flesh means, like when Paul talks about the flesh versus the spirit, it means those things that are weak about about us, those things that are, tra- you know, that, that's the essence. It's, it's all of our limitations are encompassed in that word, that we're flesh. Okay, he really emptied himself out, as we say in Philippians. He emptied himself out, and really took on all of our weakness. He took on all of it. Now I want to watch the word "became" can be a, can be a give us the wrong idea. Sometimes we have the idea that you know uh, Jesus was there with the Father, and he comes down like an internship to spend time with us, and then he gets better, he goes back home, and takes up his old job again. No. Christ, when he takes on our humanity, remains human and divine forever. It's, it's not a temporary thing, it's forever. Here's a way to think about it, is think about a house. For example, despite my, my wife's useful, looks so youthful as she is, indeed is, uh, you look at me and say, the guy's old, and yeah, we have adult children. When kids go off to college, a temptation is their bedrooms are empty. And you say, wouldn't this be a great time to convert a bedroom like into a study or into a a sewing room or fill it into like a hobby room? Wouldn't this be a great time? We talk about, well, you know, that that bedroom's become a, you know, a a study, but that could also come back and turn back and become a bedroom again if they come home and don't have a job. We call that a nightmare as a technical theological term. Okay, but in any event, (laughs) okay. So what we're talking about become doesn't mean that. It's like adding an addition to a house. When that addition is that, it's not going away. The house is unchanged. The floor plan of the house is exactly what it was, but now we've added a big addition. God, that's what we call the hypostatic union, the second person of the Holy Trinity, has taken on a real humanity, which is inseparable from him now. It's, you know, you cannot divide the two. He's truly God and truly man, and it will never change ever. That's why Paul says we have an advocate. It's the man, Jesus Christ. Why we celebrate the ascension, we say humanity, us, is sitting at the right hand of God. Now, why incarnation? Uh, There are are famous books written on this, but here's what really comes. First of all, we might think incarnation was just a way a sort of symbolic thing, you know, how God could communicate better with us. Well, look at the first line we had in the epistles of the Hebrews today. God doesn't have any, time, had any trouble communicating. He didn't actually have to become a human being to do that. It says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoken to the fathers through the prophets. He, you, know, he could have, you know, He could have been an appearance, right? He could have appeared. The Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove, but He didn't become a dove. He appeared. Christ could have appeared to be a human being, but no, he actually became a human being. Why would he actually go to the trouble? Why was it necessary for God to become a human being, what we celebrate today? Why would that be necessary? Well, let me uh, give you um, sort of a simple example. Let me give you an example. When I was a young man, wow, that was a long time ago, you say, okay, but okay, I loved hiking. I did some really serious hiking with a buddy of mine from college. Every summer, we'd go on like a two-week hiking thing, you know, out west, you know, the national parks and things. And he ended up settling in Santa Fe, uh, rather in um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I remember once I went, you know, I'd stop. I was going on a visit, a business trip to the west coast. I stopped there for the weekends. We could go hiking. And we went up the Sandria Peaks there, and we're hiking on the trails and it was spring and there's still about there's a snow line you go up above the snow line and you know that's hence snow okay well we're there a few miles from trailhead and guess what happens i fall i slip on the ice and my left arm comes down on a rock and both bones break oh gee you know i thought you know it's it's miles away (laughs) i remember telling my my hiking buddy i said what are we going to do and figuring i don't know and he says they're not sending a helicopter. <laughs> You're mobile. You're going to get down the same way we came up. You're just going to have to walk. And this is sort of the story of humanity. With Adam, we have sin enter the world. One man was disobedient to the point of death. And one of the great early theologians of the church was St. Irenaeus, and he calls it, um, it's basically like re, um, recapitulation. He says, basically, we have to reverse this, is basically what we need is someone if if disobedience to the point of death brought death to the whole world, we need obedience to the point of death to bring life, to restore life. But here's the problem. No human being could ever do that because what happened in sin is that we now are incapable of that sin has made us, you know, uh, it's like a child who gets something from a parent who has drugs and things, you know. You're just born with certain things. That can't be the same. So, we could never have perfect obedience. Now, we say, well, that Jesus could do it, Not not so fast. You know, there's only one thing God can't do. I mean, really can't do. I'm not talking about playing with words. Like we say, God can't do evil. That's playing with words, because we define good as things God does. You know, it's just playing with words but there's one thing that God is actually incapable of doing by his very nature. What's God's name? I am. He's life. God cannot die. It's the one thing he is utterly incapable. He's life. God is the actual source of life. So we as human beings, can't, we can die well enough, but we can't be perfectly obedient. God can come here and be perfectly obedient, but he can't die. We need both, and that's the story of the incarnation. Christ takes on our humanity exactly for the purpose of dying. That's why Christmas is is connected to Easter. The reason Christ became incarnate was so he could die on the cross for us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, you know, that we're celebrating. That's why he came. So we have in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I love this Jesus. at a a hard moment in John's Gospel, he sees he's going to die very, very shortly, a very horrible death. And here's what he says. He says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. He's saying, the whole reason I came into the world a human being was to die. So how can I ask the Father not have this happen? This is why I am here. Okay. Now, the the subject of this sermon is called, you know, seeing into the very heart of God. This is the really good news I wanted to share with you this Christmas morning. You know, if I had to ask myself deep down, if my life depended on it, what do I think every human being wants more than anything else? And I really think it's to be loved. They really, I think human beings more than anything else want to have assurance that they are loved. And one of the things that torments us is the thing, maybe I'm not loved, or maybe if something changed, that person wouldn't love me anymore. And we feel that way to God. You know, we talk about God loving us, but deep down we feel, how do I know I can trust that? How do I know I can trust that? So, you know, trust does have to be earned. So, think about it. When I say trust has to be earned, we owe everybody, every human being, the image of God deserves respect, to be treated with respect and courtesy and things, but not trust. Look, I'm a CPA. I was an auditor. I I People I knew would still show me the receipts. (laughs) You know, that's how it works. You You know, trust has to be earned. So, how does God earn our trust? Seriously, that's a real question that God answers today. Well, you say, hello, he created me. True, but he created rocks and trees and all sorts of other things. And we would say, you know, as an accountant, we, we say, what's the value of something when you're doing a journal entry? What's the value? It's what you have to give up to get it, right? That's the value of something, what you have to surrender to get something. Well, let's see, God is eternal, so it didn't take up any time. And he created us out of nothing. So God didn't have to give up anything to make us. So how would I know something that took him no time, no effort, why would that persuade me that the God of the universe would care about me any more than a rock? And this is where the story of Christmas, knowing why Christ came, changes everything. So let's talk about the story of Abraham, our great father in faith, because it exactly parallels the story of Jesus. Now, with Abraham, this is the father of believers. And the first thing we have with Abraham is he's told, when he's still Abram in his old age, he's told, and boy, I'm sensitive to this. Imagine somebody told at my age saying, leave your, your retirement account behind, leave your paid off house behind, let's, let's start new. They say, whoa, he's an old man. He's all settled in, and he's saying, I want you to come into a place, I won't even tell you where it is, just come with me. It's like jump in the car, I'll tell you on the way. Abraham listens to God, that's faith. And he, the scriptures celebrate that faith, but it's not good enough. You know, there are some people who lend you 10 dollars. doesn't mean they lend you 100 dollars, is it, right? It's good, but it doesn't guarantee you bigger things. So the second time we run into Abraham with faith is Abraham is told in his old age, when it is physically impossible to have children, he's told you're going to have a son by Sarah. This is crazy talk. Sarah is beyond menopause. And he says, well, nobody said, but he says he believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul loves citing that. That's still not good enough. Okay, $100 doesn't mean they would actually take out a mortgage on their house for you. How do I know how far if Abraham's really all in? So he says, you know, I want you to take the son you love, your only son, the one you love, and I want you to sacrifice him. It doesn't make any sense. But Abraham goes ahead and is about to sacrifice his son. And what happens? An angel stops and says, Stop! He says, Now I know. The word know is a very powerful word in Hebrew. It's not like ours just being aware of something. No means removing all down, you know, just saying, Now I know. You know that this is this is a real thing. If you give up your own, son, you know, if you give up your own son, you give up anything. And any of us who are parents can tell you that. You know, I can imagine situations. I'm not a brave guy, but I can imagine situations, a little kid in trouble or something, I might, you know, do something to save them. But there is nothing I can imagine which would cause me to have one of my children give up their life for somebody else. It violates everything in a parent's heart. So he's saying if somebody's willing to give up their own child, their only child, their all hope of the future, that's the real thing. There can be no question there's nothing they wouldn't give. Well, that's exactly thanks to what happens here, why we can trust God now. He took on our humanity to die for us, and the Father actually went through with what Abraham wasn't asked to go through. That's why uh, Jews never refer to the sacrifice of Abraham. God forbid Abraham didn't sacrifice Isaac. He was bound. It was the binding of Isaac. But Christ did die on the cross. There was no angel to stop Christ's death. So he's saying, that's why the famous John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave up his own son. Wow, he said, if God could do that, he'll do anything. That's how we know we can trust God. If God will do that, he will do anything. But then we might say, well, that's true, except what if you really blew it? You know, he does that. I've done terrible sins. When did that change something? That's what we're told. No, no, you said, Paul says, you don't get it. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. It's not because we cleaned up our act. If that were true, it would mean that if we somehow fell, that God would cease loving us. It would be conditional love, and you'd never feel safe. But he said, no, God, before we changed anything, God so loved the world, you know, He gave His Son for us. That's how we know we can trust God. Now, how do we take advantage of this incredible gift? Now, something I should tell you about the church's liturgy is the liturgy is about remembering. We have the great feast we remember, but the word remembrance means something special in the liturgy. You see, in Hebrew again, the word remember has a meaning it doesn't have for us. In addition to we think remember means to recall, which can mean, but it also means to take action. It says God remembered Israel. God remembered Sarah. And it means this is the moment where he's going to act upon something, he's gonna take action. God remembered Noah. You know, this is the moment where suddenly he's going to get out of that ark. God remembered. So, every time we remember something in the church year, God is asking us right now to make this a living reality. So, it's not just a matter of looking back to what happened then, it's what can happen right now because of what God does. So, I want to end on this. is I, I love the fact, as, as an Anglican, that uh, Philip Brooks was a… Uh, was actually a chaplain at Harvard College, and he wrote a very, very famous Christmas carol everybody knows, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And it starts out, we all know a Little Town of Bethlehem about what happened in Bethlehem is the first verse. But the next two verses say, okay, let's forget about that. Let's talk about us now. How does this affect us now? And so what's the second verse? It says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. Now listen up. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So he's saying this isn't just something that happened long ago. Christ is prepared to enter into our hearts right now, as much as at Christmas. Then he goes on, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born to us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. So today we're actually going to approach the living Lord in Holy Eucharist. So this is the time for our earnest Christmas prayer to be, Come, Lord Jesus, come dwell in me now.